Hello, welcome to the Southern Money podcast supported by Kingsfleet. You'll find us in a rather unusual location. We're on Felixstowe Beach at the moment, but at Felixstowe's important to me. It's where I grew up. It's a place where I went to school. And in that time of growing up, there was one particular part of life that was referred to back in 1953 that we don't often talk about in Suffolk, and that's the floods. Uh, So typically our podcast will be talking about how you spend your money, how you save your money, whether you give it away. We talk to charities, community groups, business leaders, financial experts. But today we're speaking to the author of a book all about those floods of 1953, Jean McPherson. I'm also really pleased that Leslie Dolphin, who you'll be familiar with, an experienced interviewer and broadcaster, is joining us to interview Jean. So I'm going to hand back to the warm of Leslie's home where Leslie is speaking to Jean and I'll enjoy a bracing walk on the Felix OC front. Jean, thank you very much for doing this and, and we're actually recording in uh, my house, which is on Manwick Road in Felixstowe, and uh, that sort of edges on to Langer Road. So some of the houses in this road itself would have been flooded in 1953. Yeah, most of them would be. And because you're nearer the seafront, you would have had less flood than the people further down nearer Langer Road, who had much higher levels, up to six, seven foot down that end. But because you're this end of town, when the incline goes up to the prom, you would probably have had it about knee-deep. Well, every day I drive past that memorial and I, I and that little blue line that tells you how deep the water became is just phenomenal. It's so hard to believe. Just just take us back. So we'll talk about your book. This has been a passion of yours for years, the local history side. Take me back to 1953. It's the 31st of January. It was through the night, wasn't it? So for those who don't know Felix, though, who maybe don't know the story of the floods, just paint me that picture. Basically, it was a normal Saturday. People were going about their normal business. By the evening, there were people out at the Pier Pavilion, which is where the leisure centre is now on the seafront. They were at the local dance. The two cinemas in town were chock-a-block with people celebrating. All the hostelries and pubs were full and people were doing their normal business on a very blowy evening. But it was later that evening that conditions worsened considerably. By eight o'clock, for example, the ferry community, the boat that went over to RAF Bordsey, um, the boat which runs still today across the Deben, um, that had to be stopped because they couldn't physically get the boat to steer across. Down the other end of town, in the west end of town, down Langer Road End, near the, the, what is now the port of Felixstowe, um, things were starting to happen. The interesting thing about this, and it's something that I think, or I'll ask you later whether you think we've learned Mm -hmm. lessons, is weather forecasts weren't the same then, communications weren't the same then. And and so although there were problems right along the east coast of this country, uh, the Netherlands lost lots of people as well, people just didn't know what was coming, did they? No, there was a fairly innocuous um, depression called uh, Low Z in Iceland. It came around the top of Scotland, then funnelled through... Orkney and down the east coast. That caused the surge, which was on top of a spring tide, which had been kept in on most of the inlets and the rivers. So you've got a high tide already. On top of that, you've got this surge that formed and this whoosh of water came. 
And in Felixstowe, the water actually came not over the prom, as you would expect, but it actually came through where we now know the port of Felixstowe. And the walls of the River Orwell were breached. The water went into the low-lying marshes that were the other side of the, that uh, earth wall. And that ended up with the whole of the west end of Felixstowe being flooded right up to what we now call the Ordnance Roundabout, Liddell's Premier Inn. It, 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 I mean, your book has lovely photos, so anyone who doesn't know where, you know, how Felixstowe lies will be able to get a great idea of, of which bits of Felixstowe were flooded and weren't. And Felixstowe town is up on a hill, so most of the town was OK. But either end, so the west and the east ends of Felixstowe, are low-lying. You've got the ferry, which you've already mentioned, and then the other end where these days the port of Felixstowe is. You've got the Langard area and so yeah. on. And it was that water coming, it went round into the river Orwell and then broke through. And I didn't know until I read your book that there was actually a tidal wave that came through. Yes, about after midnight, possibly before one o'clock, somewhere around that period, the seven breaches were made in the seawall of the River Orwell um, at the port, the dock as it was called then. Um, that forced this water through and it literally just whooshed and became a rolling tidal wave which rolled all the way up um, Langer Road and affected all the roads coming off Langer Road at the side. And we haven't mentioned deaths yet but 41 people, it's a huge number, lost their lives didn't they that mm. night? In the total of the 307 deaths of the whole of the East Coast, 41 is the second highest Canvey Island lost 58. Um, Felixstowe got no warning. It was unexpected. It was not coming the place where they expected. They expected it to come over the prom into Undercliff Road. They expected it to come sea road. Up through the sea. I mean, yes. so if you're looking out to sea, you would expect the tide to come up, water to come over so, up the beach and across. But it wasn't that that caused the big problems. That's it. And because it was at night, there were a lot of deaths. And people could not escape the flood because it was unexpected, quick and very difficult to get away from. Your, your dad has his own story and your mum in fact did yes. it. And we'll talk about your mum later but your dad remembers that tidal surge, yes. that, that wave doesn't he? My dad owned a taxi business at the time with um, his father Ernest Dodson. Um, and my father had a regular contract at the Pier Pavilion to pick up two girls from Langard Cottages and he would take them home safely every Saturday night. And he noticed that there was a little bit of water sloshing around Langer Road at that point, which would have been after midnight. The dance finished about half past 11. Um, and he went down to what is now Langard Common and delivered the girls safely, returned on the return journey. The wave was literally following him up Langer Road. He saw it in his rear view mirror. He saw he? it in his rear view mirror and he's he maintained for the rest of his life that he had never driven so fast in Felixstowe and he was an ex-rally driver. He liked doing <laughs> his rallies around Suffolk countryside. So for him to say he put his foot down means he did put his foot down and he lived in the flooded area um, in Cavendish Road. But fortunately at the time, my mother and my grandmother who lived next door, they had both got together and moved furniture up and checked that the, my brothers and my older brothers and sisters were safe. I was not actually around at that time. <laughs> so, so take me through what's inspired you to write this book, because that, there have been other books, haven't there? But you wanted to get those final untold stories, because slowly people who were involved then, uh, 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 we're losing them, aren't we? Because it is 70 years ago. 
I think since I've retired, local history has become a bit of a passion. It's always been there, but it's been the passion. In I'm an archivist, the joint archivist for the Felix Doe Society. And so, therefore, I do a lot to do with local history. I've done a lot about church history, about the town's history, and finding out some of those little things that people really want to know. And the flood has always been there in my life because my parents were flooded. They lived in a flooded area. My father had just bought the garage in Undercliff Road and signed the paperwork literally a day or two before the flood. Um, he was fortunate that didn't get flooded, but then he had sandbagged along the top of the forecourt. So flood, the flood water didn't enter. So I grew up knowing about the flood, but not appreciating fully the story. It, it wasn't until I was teaching that I actually chose it as a topic to teach some children in a particular class. And that really started inspiring me to find out more and more. And that's when my parents' story came to light. And I interviewed other people at the time um, just to find out what their story was, including a lovely dear lady that I used to call Granny West, who lived in Beach Station Road, and how she and her son George and her husband, who was the local greengrocer, managed to cross over Beach Station Road, Walton Avenue, and get up onto the railway line and get to safety. You, you've got a photo in your book that's fascinating because uh, uh, if you don't know Felix though, Langer Road runs alongside the railway line that goes into mm. the port and there's a park, isn't there, between Langer Road and the, the railway line and that was just flooded, wasn't it? I mean, this whole area was flooded and the only bit that was left was the railway line. It was the railway line and that it was most people's place of safety to get to to be able to walk out and most people who were living in Langer Road didn't know that you could go to the prom and walk along the prom even though there was a lot of rubble and beach huts and all sorts of damage along the prom um, that you could get to safety that way. Because everyone assumed that the everyone water would assumed... come over, over from the sea instead of behind Rhine through the river. And I, I guess these days that couldn't happen because we have the port there. T tell me about the housing, because a lot of this was just single-storey prefab housing built on, on marshland, and that had an effect, didn't it? So a lot of the people living in those houses were older people, and they just had nowhere to go. This is right. The, the prefabs, there, there were... Um, a large number of prefabs built in an L shape down um, Orford Road and Langer Road. It was part of the country's initiative really to get cheap housing post-war and to get people into housing. At the same time we happened to have had up in Coronation Drive area um, a lot of council housing starting to be built so that people could be housed. But down at the prefabs the most deaths occurred I think it's 23 out of the 41 deaths in Felixstowe occurred from those properties. Um, a lot of families affected down there because they were single storey, they were on marshland, and physically you had to go down some steps to go to it, so it was even lower lying land. And if you think that the water was coming from the port, which was adjacent, it's going right into this lower lying land, which is why the single storey buildings were covered. The sad thing is, um, one of the families that was affected, um, her father was Leonard Crossan, and he had campaigned vigorously that single-storey housing should not go there. And then his own daughter and family died. 
You're listening to the Suffolk Money Podcast, supported by Kingsfleet, with me, Leslie Dolphin, and with me today, local historian Jean McPherson. She's written a lovely book, The Felixstowe Floods of 1953, Never to be Forgotten. So, so tell me about some of those stories. I, um, I've read, I had a quick flick through the book, and one that sticks in my mind is uh, uh, there were a couple in, and these were in flats, so they were all right above the flat, but they actually, they dug up the floor, pulled up the floorboards, broke through the ceiling so they could actually talk to the woman below, and they couldn't pull her up, yeah. but they gave her hot water bottles while she stood on her bed in the water and helped her through the night. Yeah, that was friends of mine, Dennis and Jean Wybrow, who I've known for years, and I happened to be around this one day for a cup of tea, and I just said to them, I'm writing a book about the 53 flood and they said we were involved in that and then this amazing story of them being unwilling well sort of reluctant rescuers in many respects because they didn't consider themselves heroes they just tried to save their neighbor in the ground floor flat uh, Dennis was had come from London he had been in RAF Felix so had met Jean and he was coming up for weekends they weren't married at that point and he just came and they went to the cinema, like everybody else, came home after a fish and chip uh, meal. And then the flood started. They noticed the water climbing the rear steps um, outside. Um, they also noticed frogs on the road. That was the funny thing. And they hate frogs, apparently. Jean does not like frogs. So having seen that water was coming into the house, they tried to get out of the front door to go to the neighbour to see if the neighbour was okay, but they physically could not open the door from the force of the water. So in the end, they ended up shouting to the neighbour through the floorboards and opening them up, like you said, and saving her because they couldn't actually get her through the joist. Dennis couldn't get down because the joists were so close together. She couldn't get up and to safety either. But by standing there and keeping her warm, she didn't suffer hypothermia like many of the uh, people that actually ended up dying and was able to survive, rescued later on the Sunday. That was one of the big problems, wasn't it? It was night time when the water arrived and lots of people didn't know till it was too late, but also it was really cold. So people did end up on roofs and so on, but there are stories of, of you know, children being uh, dunked in the water and then dying of hypothermia. Some really mm. horrendous stories. Yes, one of the saddest stories is I interviewed um, a chap called... Uh, Tim Johnson and his sister Margaret Johnson died and that was exactly what happened with her. She fell into the water when they were clambering up on the roof of the prefab. Um, she was fine um, until quite late on but then probably in the very, um, at, literally just probably about an hour before she had died in her mother's arms. Her mother didn't know that she had died but when the rescuers came they discovered that Margaret had died and it was from the hypothermia not actually drowning and this happened in two or three cases with the children and with several of the adults I mean other adults were drowned because they couldn't physically get away from the flood they were immobile or ill in again many in ground floor flats or houses you also have a chapter in your book saying that there was flooding at Felixstowe Ferry, which is the opposite end of Felixstowe. It's on the River Deben, just sort of into the River Deben, isn't it? But there was mm. flooding there, and it often does flood. And do you think that helped the community there? Because they were quite aware and they checked on each other quite a lot, didn't they? I think the story that comes out of the ferry really is to the credit of the Brinkleys and the Whites, the two big uh, ferry community families. Um, Charlie Brinkley and uh, Barry White, um, 
John and Anne White's fathers, they actually went round the community knowing that the conditions were bad. They had stopped the ferry at eight o'clock. Uh, they were encouraging those that lived in the lower lying properties to go to Harbour Villas, which has three storeys um, and therefore much higher than many of the other properties, and just to go and spend the night there, which was a normal sort of practice that they seemed to um, do. And because of that, nobody died apart from one lady, Vera Broom, died later um, from the result of the events of that night. They rode and rescued her, I think, they, took, her, yes. took her and waited with her until an ambulance could get to her and then took her to hospital. It was several days later she did yes. pass away. Yes. She, she lived in um, the houses that are now near, actually where Anne White now lives, Anne and John White, their property. She came out of the top window there to the ferry boat inn, which had the upper storey where lots of people were um, staying, had temp taken temporary refuge. And then somebody walked across the higher parts of the golf course called the, the Buntings um, so that they could get the doctor and the ambulance. And the ambulance could only come as far as what is now the golf club, which is, I suppose, three quarters of a mile, a mile away. And so they rode Vera to the golf club. The ambulance picked her up and took her to hospital. But as I say, she subsequently died some days later. Your book is full of stories of rescues as well, and, and mentioning rowing there, back up to the other end of Felixstowe, the west end of Felixstowe, there was a, a Manning, what we call now Manning's Amusements, but it was Butlins then, and I think yes. they even took boats from there to help rescue, and people pulled boats from gardens and all sorts. Yes, there were, there were the paddle boats in the Tunnel of Love. You would go through the Tunnel of Love with your loved one. Apparently it was quite an experience, according to people, and have your little smooch on the way and all the rest of it. Very beautiful, serene experience. Well, they just basically took the boats from there, which would only hold two, three people at the most. So you had one person actually rowing, and then they were able to rescue one or two people. In one case, in the Watkins family case, they rescued Doris Watkins, who was very pregnant, and that's all they could take took her back to the rescue centre at the Cavendish and then went back and got the children, um, one of which subsequently died from hypothermia and one of which was saved because of the quick thinking of the local cottage hospital who managed to warm him up enough to survive. You have a, you have a timeline of the events of that day, not just here in Felixstowe but right down the coast, uh, the whole coast, but then you have a second timeline and that is the days after, which is fascinating how people came together, how there was a fund set up, how the Cavendish was where people went to, for their emergency centre mm. and so on. I think we were fortunate in Felixstowe that people jumped into action very quickly, but it seems that every community that was affected was in isolation. There was no national coordinated uh, recovery plan or program for several days, perhaps even as late as a week, week and a half, um, when most of the communities had started to get on and repair and deal with the, uh, the damage and the aftermath. Felixstowe was fortunate. I think we have to thank the Eaton family um, because they opened the Cavendish. They weren't actually flooded, but immediately it became aware that somewhere was needed for all the people to pass through. And 200 families passed through there within hours. Um, we also have to thank, um, we've got um, the clerk of the council, Mr Paveley, 
and, and he was just a brilliant man who seemed to organise and jump into action. The town hall was actually opened about six o'clock in the morning. As soon as it was aware that something had happened, he was called, his caretaker opened the town hall, and the link between the two places managed to start the efforts that went on in Felixstowe. And I think that's indicative of Felixstowe even now. I mean, it's something when you look what we've gone through with COVID and everything else. Felixstowe has been a community which has looked out for its people. And, I, and we'll talk about it in a minute or two, but I think that the commemorations this year show that as well, because yes. lots of people are pulling together to, to try and make those happen. Fascinatingly, the floods, I know it's one of the things you mentioned quite early on, it, it, the floods are not that well known nationally, are they? And yet so many people died. No, the, uh, the amazing thing that I did find out um, from a local girl, Ruth Adams, now uh, she was Ruth Rust then and lived in Beach Station Road. Her father was the post office man um, and store owner. She went to college the year after in London. There were 50 on her course. Of that 50, only two knew about the floods and the other girl had been brought up in Lincolnshire, very near a, town, a coastal town that had been affected. And so it didn't feature um, in people's psyche. We have not got immediate communication like we have today. You know, you sneeze and somebody knows it on Facebook within 10 seconds. Um, we haven't got that instantaneous society. You know, everything took a long time. People relied on the BBC News. We're also in that period, that post-war period, where they were trying to be on the up, trying to get people hope and joy the housing, for example, and the Queen's coronation was just It was just a coronation on the way, wasn't <laughs> and it? And the coronation was on the way. So the whole flood episode didn't really fit in with the theme of the day. Although over weeks and months afterwards, there was a lot of support, wasn't there? My, my dad, I was telling him that we were going to be chatting, and he was at Harper Adams Agricultural College, nowhere near here, but apparently students from there came to Felix, though, to help. Yes, I think once the word got out then volunteers were really, forgive the plan, flooding into Felixstowe. Um, a lot of the local firms, the big um, paint company um, in Stowe Market, they sent hundreds of employees in rotors for several days, you know, and that's just one example. The Red Cross went into full action. One of their Woodbridge people was actually given an award for their work in the Felixstowe floods. Um, there were lots of people who couldn't do enough to help apart from the local community itself. I, I'm just going to have to mention the story of Underwoods. Underwoods, um, who are a big business in Felixstowe, a renowned business. You can go into Underwoods DIY store and get anything that you need. And you still can, can't you? Yes, and they give you the advice. And in, the, in 1953, they were, they were amongst many of the town's firms and businesses that tried to help the flood victims who had lost everything. Um, they gave mops and buckets. They gave discount for anything that was needed, bearing in mind that people would have to empty their houses and they had nothing. People gave so much. Clothing came in to the point that by the Tuesday, you know, three days after... I had to request no more clothes, please. You know, and all this is being distributed and given to the people that need it. Toys are coming from huge logistics. Yeah. Churches yeah. and children's groups. Um, Richard Lord remembers at his school. He went to Central Junior School, even though he lived near Langer. Um, he remembers 
um, his class collecting toys for him and giving them to him so that he had some new toys. You know, it's little things like this where people didn't have a lot, but they gave a lot. And you have stories of people who got stuff from abroad. And I know yes. WIs, I think, didn't yes. they rally around the world together? They rallied around the world. Also, with us being a port, um, a, a slightly small little dock at that point, people were used to coming into Felixstowe, so there were some connections. Other connections were because of individuals who'd gone out to countries. There's a big connection with South Africa, and they sent uh, money and goods that could be um, distributed for the St Edmunds Church. Um, others, ca Canada. My mother had a blank had blankets and a carpet for years, according to my brother. Um, and when he mentioned the blankets, I could remember them. And they were the flood victims' uh, blankets given out and distributed. You went to, for example, the Cavendish to collect. And later on, you went to the town hall to collect things. You went to church halls to collect things, and so on. Um, they were, they did end up with a lot of kindness and support from so many different places. But this is, you know, we're talking two, three weeks after the event going on for months. months. £100,000, I think, several months later yes. in that fund, which was phenomenal for those days. It did have its downsides, though, because uh, I guess there wasn't the same video that you have in, in social media these days, but there was a problem with sightseers coming. That was hilarious in the sense that um, a picture came to light from the Phil Hadwin estate, um, which basically just says, sightseers, please keep away. And then a story came from Anne Fairs um, that her brother, who lived out of town um, in Luton, wanted to come to Felixstowe to check on the family, as did many relatives, because the phones were down, so you couldn't phone them. You could telegram them, but you didn't get an instantaneous reply. And so he was stopped by a police blockade on the one road in and out of Felixstowe, which is what we would say is now the old Trimley Road. Um, and you were just stopped and you had to justify that you had reason to go beyond and into Felixstowe because too many people were standing at Peewit Hill. thousands of people. Yeah, just... Peewit Hill was a good place to look across um, where McDonald's is now on the Dockspur Road. Um, People were standing up by the golf club, looking across to the ferry. You know, anywhere uh, was a vantage point to look, to see the damage that was going on. And people were even walking down the railway line and blocking the railway line. I mean, the photos in the book give a real impression of what it was like. And, and these sightseers there, but at the same time, in those first few weeks, on those first week in, in your timeline, they were still doing inquests, weren't they? And bodies were still being found. Yes, yes. Um, it took a while for some of the bodies to be found. Even one family, like the Bushnell family, they found the mother and the two children fairly quickly huddled in a corner, but they didn't find the husband because the wardrobe had fallen on him and he was hiding in the wardrobe, so to speak. Um, others were washed out to Trimley Marshes. David Sibbert was washed out to Trimley Marshes. Another one was washed out on Langard. Um, so there are different places where the bodies ended up. Livestock the as well, a lot of livestock, livestock everywhere. If you think down on the marshes, you had the cattle. There was a pig farm down there. Everybody had sheep, um, chickens, you name it. And all those were dead and lying. Um, a nasty sight, a bloated cow, apparently. And there's a picture in the book of Beach Station Road with the cows being trundled off. A lot of lorries were needed which the council took responsibility for, the town council organised it, to remove the rubbish. 
and the same at the ferry. They had a big bonfire, but they also had the town council remove much of the debris. It was massive. One garden, I think, in Nacton Road, Levington Road, had something like five or six lorry loads of debris. Um, bits of wood, bits of other people's properties, bits of anything that could have fallen down or been part of the damage that was going on. It's the 70th anniversary this year from those 53 floods and people are taking it seriously. There are lots of, been lots of plans put together and so on. Do you feel that those people are remembered? That's the title of your book, The Felixstowe Floods of 1953, Never to be Forgotten. And I know that's your passion, isn't it? That you want to make sure all 41 people are remembered. I think all 41 people. We were fortunate in Felixstowe in 2003 anniversary. They started the planning of the memorial. Um, the Memorial Garden in Langer Road didn't actually get opened until 2006 for various reasons. But that they've always had an annual service there. That is important because that shows respect to those 41. It's the biggest disaster that's happened to Felixstowe, so we should remember. We've just had the anniversary, for example, of the European Gateway, another disaster that impacted the town, perhaps not as much as the flood. So remembering the story, passing the story on, actually helps us that they were real people with real lives and we were a town going through the worst at that time. Um, but now we can look and say, well, can we learn the lessons? And I think we have to be proud that not only have we got a memorial, which amazingly was a stunning design um, to really bring home the disaster. You've talked about the blue line being seven foot two inches um, above around so that you've got an idea of the height of the water but also the fact that we now teach it to the school children in Felixstowe, Langer School, um, Colney School, Kingsfleet and others all do a module remembering this to bring the history alive it's not just something to be forgotten. So you're proud of your book as well I know it's taken a lot of work through Covid <laughs> and so on. There are moments when I am very proud of it and there are moments when I remember how hard it has been because when you're dealing with people, as a historian, I used to teach my year at sevens that you don't take everything as gospel just because somebody said it or it's in the newspaper. Our, our newspapers of the time are littered with inaccuracies which have been um, corrected over the years but still get perpetuated. There are myths with families, people embellish stories. Um, my own brother, for example, was convinced that he had rescued people until I said, but you were only five at the time. <laughs> and we've actually discovered he confused being given a ride in the boat from the, his Cavendish Road house to the seafront was him rescuing people in his mind. Um, so you have to unravel things and unravel the bias and unravel the uh, what is fact, what is fiction, what is... Um, embellished what is not and that has been a very very difficult task and the book is my best guess now for for the facts because I've tried to put in things that have been verified from more than one source. Your, your mum was told off for going into work with the wrong shoes wasn't she? <laughs> my mum was a teacher in Ipswich at the time and she used to catch uh, the train into Ipswich and then would take a bike from um, the station or catch the bus to St Augustine's um, and she would take a bike round to school. The head teacher told her off because she was wearing plimsolls. Um, basically, her school shoes had floated out the back door with the children's toys. When they'd opened the back door, because it was coming in the front, they opened the back, it whooshed through the house, um, and 
she was had three young children. Um, my brother was only nine months at the time. Um, my eldest brother was five and my sister was three. Um, and she went to school to work on that Monday, leaving grandma in charge of one flooded house, children to look after, etc. Um, and got told off because she was wearing pumps as being totally unsuitable, Mrs. Dodson. And then she explained the story to the head teacher, who actually apologised um, later in the day by presenting her with a pair of school shoes um, to, which she could wear. And I remember my mum wearing those school shoes till she retired in the 70s because they were so comfortable. They were uh, somewhat more expensive than the shoes she would have brought, I think, at the time. I, I, I think it shows as well how, how these days we know what's happening everywhere, don't we? But just a few miles down the road, people not totally aware of what was happening here in Phoenixstone. We've run out of time, really, but I know there's one story, lots of stories probably that you would like mm -hmm. to tell. But tell me about the teddy bear that comes to the memorial service every year. Uh, Carol Josie um, and her sister, and more as they are now, uh, father and mother, Doug and, I can't remember the name of her mother, um, they lived in Langer Road. They got flooded. Uh, they lived with their grandma and their great-grandma. So four generations living in the same house. As a five-year-old, four-year-old, um, Carol was really... When the flood was happening, she could see that the adults were agitated. She didn't really understand what was going on. She'd spent the night huddled in her parents' bed with her mother and her sister, who happened to have her legs in plaster at the time. Um, and they really, she said, she was really quite upset um, because of the adults being upset. So grandma and great-grandma were really upset looking across to the what we now know as the prefabs and what was happening there and being totally helpless not being able to help because of the swirling water the wind etc carol as as this young child was worried about her ted jennifer who is a boy by the way despite the name <laughs> um, which just amuses me and jennifer um, actually survived because when father went downstairs when the water receded early on Sunday morning it receded a little bit from the nearly the top stair to about three stairs down um, uh, she looked from the top of the stairs and there on the sofa was Jennifer floating on the settee as dry as a bone so father rescued Jennifer gave Jennifer to Carol Carol has since uh, looked after Jennifer Ted and Jennifer Ted has been at every memorial service since the, the memorial garden was built and services were um, started annually. So you see Jennifer Ted, amazing. Mother knitted some extra clothing, a little swimming costume and she's kept very carefully in a blanket to protect her. You know, I think the people on uh, the repair shop would be very proud that this Ted is so well maintained. Um, but it's, it's indicative of how children felt. I mean, my own brother, his favourite um, pedal car got rusty because of the salt water. Um, other children, um, Felix Newson lost a train set that him and his brother, because we're just after Christmas, we're within a month of Christmas. And so people, the children remember by what they lost. Um, Marge Flower lost her push bike in the front garden. It was found still in the front garden. Um, but in a very poor state. 
Um, so they remember their memories are tied in with their favourite toys and things that were precious to them. And in fact, in a way, it's not all doom and gloom because there are funny stories of ladies' bloomers being shown and things like this that would never have happened in the normal course of events. And also, some of the children just taking the whole thing as a bit of an adventure because they didn't realise the seriousness. It's only in later years they realise the trauma of the situation and how that has affected them maybe all their lives. But it's been put to one side and forgotten. Um, but now they're telling their story because they feel everybody needs to know the story. We're not going to forget it now, I have to no. say. It makes a really good read. Thank you so much for, for all that hard work putting it together. I've learnt lots. Uh, I knew a bit, but I've learnt lots. So Jean McPherson, thank you very much. The book is The Felix Stowe Floods of 1953, Never to be Forgotten. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of the Suffolk Money Podcast. I trust that you found it informative and useful. Uh, our questions were asked by Leslie Dolphin, and I'm very grateful to Leslie for joining up with us and uh, assisting on this podcast. And our guest was Jean McPherson, who has written this wonderful book on the floods of 1953. So I'm really grateful as ever to the team that supports us in putting this all together. Sally Birch, who books up our speakers, for Kevin Birch, who edits the material, and for Joy Day, who ensures that everything goes online that needs to. Uh, a lovely team, and I'm indebted to every one of them for all that they do in putting this together. If you have found this worthwhile and you can give us a five-star review on your podcast provider of choice then you'll help other people to find it and likewise if there's anything you'd like us to look into anyone you want us to speak with then please do get in touch or if there's a subject you would like us to cover uh, you can contact us either on twitter in at suffolk money or you can uh, contact us through our facebook page Either way, that's it for now, and we look forward to having you with us in our next episode. Thank you once again. <laughs>